Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, there's a very good chance by the time you hear this, Donald John Trump has decided to run for president again. I didn't want it, you didn't want it, but here we are. The fight continues. Please go to lincolnproject.us and sign up. Get our updates, our emails, our ads. Find out how you can help, how you can be part of this fight between now and 2024. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by John Delavolpe, the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics, where he has led the Institute's polling initiatives on understanding American youth since 2000. The Washington Post has referred to him as one of the world's leading authorities on global sentiment, opinion, and influence, especially among youth and in the age of digital and social media. John is an MSNBC contributor and has written for a variety of outlets, including The Washington Post and The New York Times. He is also the founder and CEO of SocialSphere, a public opinion research firm based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. John's latest book, which we discussed this past summer, is Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America, which is available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us in studio from Washington, D.C. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Reed. All right. So, John, quick question. What you wrote in your book and what you saw last week, did they match up? I think so. That subtitle is sounding pretty good, isn't it? I was just going to say, maybe we just say, all right, it's, it's been a great show. Thanks, John. Yeah, I've been, you know, we've been at this for 22 years now, right? 22 years. That's 100,000 plus interviews just at Harvard with the Institute of Politics, talking exclusively to younger people, the entire millennial generation, a half of Gen Z. And as I wrote about in the book, as we've talked about on this podcast, things changed in 2017. In America, specifically for this cohort of young people turning into adults, thinking about their values, thinking about politics for the first time. And this is actually just a three-peat, right? This is not news, what happened this week, that young people were going to participate at levels that exceeded previous generations. We saw that in 2018. We saw that in 2020. And of course, we saw that again this last week. But if that's the case, John, then why are you in such demand? Why is it such a big deal? Is it because we now call them Gen Z? Why is everybody just taking note now? Is it a downstream effect of the fact that so many people are surprised by the result? I think a lot of people are surprised by the result. I think most people seem to be surprised by the result, both Democrats as well as Republicans, to be honest. But I don't know why. I don't know why, because our data has been consistent. And then when I look at the other, quote, high quality polls, the cycle, clearly there's not a couple thousand young people, but the directional insights I saw from CBS, ABC, Washington Post, NBC polling, et cetera, essentially could have aligned with what the Harvard polling was saying. And that's what we always do, right? We want to feel comfortable through 
what I see in my numbers relative to what I'm hearing in the focus groups relative to what I'm seeing in high quality polling. And for me, all the pieces were pretty clear, which is young people were highly motivated. Young people are highly motivated to vote for Democrats. And as I wrote back in the New York Times in May, there was a path for Democrats to be successful and potentially win Congress. And that had to do solely with energizing this youth electorate, which had not been fully energized, of course, until the last several months. So you mentioned 2017. So just briefly take us back to why you see that as a defining moment for this generation. A couple of points. First of which is this is essentially the first time when the um, eldest members of Gen Z were turning 18. Okay. So that's kind of this turning point there, one. Second is, from the beginning, we talked about the, the main driver of participation, specifically among young people, is when they see a tangible difference in their vote. And when we were measuring kind of these attitudes, we saw for the second time in 17 years, this 10, 12 point shift in the efficacy and the immediacy of political engagement, this pre and post Trump effect. Okay. So in 2017, that's when young people began to pay attention again about the importance of politics one. Then you have the combination of the negativity around the first 10 days, the first six months of Trump and the fear that I heard that was instilled, followed by, of course, Charlottesville, Las Vegas, Mandalay Bay, Slaughter, which led a few months later, we saw Parkland. So the combination of Trump as well as the Parkland turned into March for Our Lives movement, those two things, I think, were the catalysts in 2018. I think it's interesting that you bring up Parkland and the school shootings, because Stuart Stevens on Twitter just the other day, and he said, call me crazy, but if you have a generation who's grown up with active shooter drills all over the country, and you have one party that's, you know, basically fetishizes guns, maybe that generation's not going to really be fans of them. And what this generation realizes is that it's going to take their lifetime of voting, of continuing to vote at every level for individuals up and down the ballot who want to make schools safe. And it's not just a one and done sort of thing. And that's what we're seeing. But that kind of long-term view, John, that kind of perspective, if it's not unique to this generation, it's not something you think about from young people. You think about them carpe diem. They're going to live forever, right? They don't think about the future. But is it having to frankly be grown-ups? Is it, you talk about social and digital media too, is it all of this information is at their fingertips 24-7? They're not shielded. They're not able to be shielded from this stuff anymore. Is that why they're so much more attuned to it? I think so. And when you look at the perspective of someone, any of us, specifically a young person, the last 10, 15 years, there's just been a lot of chaos, right? There's been not a lot of security. We talk about the lack of financial security in the earliest days because of the recession, 8% of families losing 20% of the wealth. And then school shooter drills, opioids, deaths by suicide, climate change, two wars, seeing George Floyd murdered. We could go on, right? So you can't not see these things, right? And they have this sense of responsibility, not just for themselves, but for those more vulnerable than themselves, right? The other folks, you know, at their high school table or in, in high school tables across America, there's a sense of responsibility. They're not just voting for themselves. They tell me time and time again, when you listen to them and you ask them, they're voting for those more vulnerable than themselves to give someone else, those DACA kids, the, the LGBTQ students who are bullied, et cetera, et cetera. That's who they're voting for. And they're deeply, deeply, deeply concerned about 
all of us losing our rights and freedoms. They're concerned about that. And they realize that it's going to take them a generation, if not a lifetime. It almost sounds a lot like Alexis de Tocqueville, right? When he traveled America and said, I've never met more individuals who had a bigger sense of community. I'm paraphrasing and probably badly, but it sounds like this is good news, which is the millennial generation. Look, I'm generation X. So who the hell knows? You know, we're Same, always, sort, right? you know, we sort of roll our eyes at everything, right? Cause it's just how it's going to be, but they're finding that community maybe organically or by necessity. We now have two generations. We now have a millennial generation and now Gen Z collectively, there'll be 40% of the next electorate, 2024, very much kind of share the same values. And one of the, of the lessons I think that I've taken from this research is that because of social media, they don't have the same geographic barriers that other kinds of voters have. So a young person in Lexington, Kentucky, is going to have more in common with someone from Lexington, Massachusetts than perhaps their parent or their grandparent. And that's really important, especially when we look at the polling in this cycle, because I think that's something that we saw in Pennsylvania and Arizona. In both cases, Fetterman and Kelly won over 70% of that youth vote under 30 years old. It was consistent state after state after state after state after state. Well, and I don't know if the, what the final number was in Dane County, Wisconsin, Madison, which is also where it's not only the state capital, also where the University of Wisconsin is. I think they were projecting the turnout in that county was going to be 85 percent. Incredible. And we saw some of these other college precincts, I'm sure you saw in Arizona and in, in Michigan, where the Democrat received 90, 95 percent of the votes. Right. And just long lines. And, you know, Stuart and I were talking about this and not to get too micro on you, but are there otherwise young Republican women, college-age Republican women who voted for a Democrat this fall because they're like, yeah, I grew up in a Republican household, but they woke up the Friday of Dobbs, the freest people who had ever lived on earth, and by the time they went to bed that night, they weren't. Are you seeing anything across the ideology of these people about what they care about, how you think they participated? We conduct a lot of qualitative research specifically with younger women or Republicans who are far-right Republicans, independents, et cetera. And certainly in the qualitative research, they talk about this concern about losing that right. Now, whether they vote a Democrat or, or stay at home, I think it depends upon some of the other factors kind of within their community, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I don't think 95% of folks in the University of Michigan precincts are Democrats. Right. And we know that's not the case. Right. So when we looked at all the early voting data, data wasn't tracking in terms of share what some people expected it to be. It was overwhelmingly Democrat, I think, because a lot of Republicans were unenthusiastic about their choices and likely stayed home. So let me ask you this. In your research, as young people are registering, right, they're coming into the electorate, into the voting pool. Are they disproportionately registering as Democrats, as independents? I assume that younger people tend to be less Republican in nature, but do they want a label or are they staying independent? There have been some cycles where we saw a plurality of newly registered people coming in as unaffiliated or independent. I'd say the last four or five years, there's been just as many Democrats, maybe a few more Democrats than independents who are unenrolled. So they're becoming more comfortable with choosing an affiliation. I think, frankly, that has something to do with Democrats, but it has a lot more to do with Republicans right now. The degree to which I think the uh, Republican Party derides, devalues, mocks, bullies young Americans is a significant concern. And that number is you know, 
think 25% or so self-identify as Republican. But don't forget that one of the top couple findings from the fall Harvard IOP poll is that 59% of individuals feel their rights are under attack. 73% feel that the rights of other Americans are under attack. And many of them believe those rights are under attack from the other party, specifically Republicans in this case, because so many folks are uh, left-leaning independents or Democrats. When you look at this, as you're looking back at this last Tuesday, was there any particular issue that you saw as the driver? Was it Dobbs? Was it the overall sort of ugliness and unseriousness or insanity of Republican candidates? Or was it sort of a grab bag of all of it? I think it's certainly a lot of nuance there, but I, I think there's two parts of the story. One part really hasn't fully been understood around young people. I think clearly Dobbs was an engine that motivated a lot of people. We've seen that over the course of the last several months, similar to the way I think we probably talked about in the past, the way in which the March for Our Lives registered new voters, et cetera, in 2018. There were signs of the summertime with AOC in 2018, signs of the summertime with Kansas in this cycle. What's not as well understood, I believe, is the degree to which Democrats engage in relational organizing. To be successful at relational organizing, you need to empower the organizers, the advocates, the activists, not just with a negative message, but with a positive message. And that's why a lot of people looked at the poll, including the Harvard IOP poll, where President Biden's approval ratings did not change significantly, maybe not at all, on top line between April and October. However, the combination of Dobbs plus bipartisan gun legislation for the first time in two generations, plus historic climate within the IRA, student debt, et cetera, those are the receipts that those relational organizers need to convince their friends and their peers to vote. So young people turned out not in spite of, but because of Biden and the work under the radar that he and his administration, I think, did to really work and nurture those young organizers. John, I had Kyle Spencer on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she just had wrote a book called Raising Them Right about the 60-year youth movement amongst conservative America. And I probably spend too much time focused on them because they're just always out there, right? Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens and all. And there's a convention, right? They have such an infrastructure, you know, on the youth side, on the right. Does that worry you in your research? Do you see that that kind of work has any purchase? Or does what I'm going to call the pro-democracy movement need something similar in that regard? I do think the pro-democracy side needs something similar. And I'm hearing anecdotally, you know, through the young people I talk to, through my focus groups, et cetera, that the Charlie Kirk Turning Points gang is engaged in college campuses. I'm seeing quantitative data that shows that they've been necessarily effective. You know, think about this. When millennials were younger, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, they were voting for Democrats by 10 points. John Kerry, 55, 45, Obama, 66, and then 60%. Hillary Clinton was back in the, in the mid-50s. We've now had three cycles in a row where younger voters are voting in the mid-60s or higher in some states. So there hasn't been any evidence that this is working. This is a generation that is coming up with a set of values. And I think, frankly, that the Charlie Kirk and the turning points is the backlash that's resulting from it. Let's look forward for them a little bit. And then I want to talk a little bit about polling generally. Right now, you'll have a Democratic president in Joe Biden running for re-election a former Republican president in Donald Trump as the Republican nominee again. Again, anything could change. So let me put that caveat out there. Um, you know, but they're on the average nearly 160 years old combined. 
how does Gen Z see that choice? Well, we've seen how they saw that choice from 2020, right? Which is that, and we saw the same thing in the big five states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Donald Trump won all the voters over the age of 45, probably all the voters over the age of 40. It was these 20 point margins among people under 30 that lifted Biden to victory across those five states. So those margins will be even larger next cycle because younger people are voting for values first. And then I think they really do appreciate the fact that Joe Biden knows how to get things done. I think they've gotten to know him a lot over the last couple of years. He was new back in 2020. There wasn't a long track record. They weren't really familiar with his role in the Senate, et cetera. So I don't think it's going to be close when it comes to that. And like I said, there's going to be 40% of them, more of those people than baby boomers. And the other thing about Biden, which is worth noting, is he's always done better than other Democrats in the older groups, right? So narrowing that margin among seniors relative to where like 2016, where Clinton was, right? So he's able to play at both ends of the age group. Well, let me ask then about our cohort, John. I know it's not your speciality, but what the fuck is wrong with Generation X? <laughs> I have this debate all the time. I don't know. You I know, mean, is it because we were raised on singles and reality bites and like we're the last generation that smoked in high school or what? Like, <laughs> yeah, come on. right. We're obviously we're, we're small. <laughs> we're like 50 50. Right. We've always been. the, But in some ways, it's more important than many people think. Right. Because we've been kind of a 50 50, you know, kind of generation in terms of how we were raised essentially by ourselves, right? The first latchkey generation. But what we've seen in the last couple of cycles is our generation, Gen X, is turning more to the right. When you look at all voters over the age of 45, significantly more voted for Republicans this cycle than in 2018. Among seniors, nine points more Republican, right? So the degree to which we talk about America rising up and saying no to fascism and, and holding the line on democracy yeah, for those under 40. Those over 40, those over 45, over 65, they voted 9, 10 points more Republican this cycle than in 2018. Yeah, maybe we should be called the 50-50 generation, John, because you know we're, we're the last generation to grow up with princess phones on our walls, right? No internet, had to get up and turn the television on. I'm only 46, but I remember having a black and white television in the kitchen, right? But we had a television in the kitchen. Absolutely a latchkey kid, right? Most of my childhood. And so there was a sort of, I guess, built-in self-reliance, sort of questioning of everything because we, we had to figure out so much on our own. But in my case, anyway, that led to that sense of independence sort of continues even to this day, which is I don't conform much. I question a lot of things. But, you know, I'm definitely on the 50% side of, I mean, I'll vote for Democrats now because I'm not a Republican. I'm not going to vote for many Republicans at the moment. But it's interesting, and I don't want to get off on Generation X too much, that given all the things they see, it's got to be, is it more simple than we think? Like in Charles Packer's book, The Last Best Hope, is it that we're the generation now with kids in high school, in college, right? Like we want them to have the opportunities to do better than we did, and it's about taxes or about this. And I might not like Donald Trump, but, you know, I don't want anything to do with that crazy socialism stuff. Is it, I guess, is it resource hoarding? Yeah. And there's a, certainly kind of a lot of pressure, you know, on Gen X in terms of having, you know, the sandwich generation now, right? Having the kids, taking care of their parents, you know, not so many more years left at work and in, in their own savings, et cetera. So I'm sure largely driven by economic reasons. But what's interesting is Gen Z are the children of Gen X. 
And in more times than not, I'm hearing a very different perspective in terms of politics and differences between the generations. So, you know, the degree to which we, you know, the independence, that's one value that they're instilling on their own children, right? Independence, thinking differently. Well, and I guess if you look back at my grandparents, my grandparents, you know, they were the greatest generation, right? Grew up in the depression with all sorts of other crises. Maybe Gen Z is a lot more like their great grandparents than anybody else. I think so. I've said for, since I researched this book, I think they have the opportunity to be that next kind of great generation. I do. And about how many of them are there right now in the country? Just raw number. Gen Z, roughly 70 million. Wow. So they're 20% of the country already. Already. You know, some people would say 85 million, but yeah, roughly 70 million. Like the way I define it is not based upon exactly the day, the month, the year. It's basically, do you have a significant memory of 9-11 and what it felt like or not? If you do, you're more likely to be in your later 20s and a millennial. Okay. If you don't, then you'll have some memory, of course, of Obama, but really the juxtaposition, the whiplash between Obama and Trump in the lockdown generation. That, I think, is kind of how I think about the experiences of Gen Z versus the experiences of millennials. No, I mean, I can remember exactly where I was when Columbine happened. Like, I know exactly where I was when that happened. And so to think about that, right, that the lockdown generation started in 1999. Mm -hmm. And what people don't always appreciate among Gen Z, they don't remember a time when America was truly united. Like that millennial will remember 9-11, but they'll also remember September 12th and September 13th, when regardless of where you lived or what party you were from, you were hanging the flag if you had one in front of your house, right? This generation hasn't had that experience. And the degree to which when I probe and I probe and I probe, oftentimes, this is interesting, they said, the proudest I was to be an American was in 2015 when the Supreme Court allowed gay marriage. And whether they're straight or gay or otherwise, it was the expansion of rights. So think about that relative to today when one political party is mostly questioning those rights and finding ways to restrict rights for half of the population. This might be an unfair question to ask you, John. It might be an unfair characterization of them. Do you believe they're proud to be Americans? I think they're proud to be Americans. I'm not sure they're proud of America is what they would say. Because if they weren't proud to be Americans, they wouldn't be doing the things that they're doing to make, you know, kind of their community, our lives, and their country better, right? They believe in America. Only 4% believe we have a healthy democracy, but they're engaging in it. So I do think they are proud to be Americans, less proud of the way which America, over the course of their lifetime, has acted both at home as well as abroad. Do you think that they are able to conflate those two things, that I am proud to be an American and I'm going to do the things I need to do politically, personally, civically to make the country? Listen, none of us ever get everything we want right in any part of life. But do you think that they're ready to pick up that mantle of the next great generation and make America closer to the vision they have for it? I have no doubt about that, Reed. And they are highly pragmatic as well. They know, like as I said when we started, it's going to take a generation or a lifetime. So they're not one and done. They realize they get something, and they're going to continue to press and press and press until they see the systemic changes that are required, again, to provide everybody with the same opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting you bring up the pragmatism because I feel like pragmatism is not popular 
in modern politics with the fringes of the parties. The right wing extreme is, I think, the majority or at least a plurality of the Republican Party. The left wing is, I think, 25 percent, maybe right at its core. But they're loud and they're noisy and they're pushy. But this says to me that, you know, I've quoted this before, is, you know, it was no less than Saul Alinsky, the radical himself, who said, if you start at zero and you get to 30, you haven't lost 70 percent. You're 30 percent further than you started. Thinking about the pragmatism. I was having a conversation with David Hogg this summer about this topic, and he said, listen, he says, I want to raise hell and raise money to elect candidates. So they want to do both. And that's the pragmatism, because again, they are focused not just on the clicks or the social media posts, they're focused on getting shit done in Washington, D.C. That's what they're focused on. And they're willing to use every single tool in this civic toolbox is what they'll tell me, right? Voting, volunteering, a variety of different things. That's unique. It's interesting you bring up David, because I was at a thing with Fred Guttenberg this past summer, whose daughter Jamie was killed at Parkland. And he said, you know where I'm going to be next week? I said, where? He said, I'm going to be at the White House when President Biden signs that bill. And I said, are you okay with it? He said, I'm okay with it because we beat the NRA. We beat him once and now we're going to beat him again and we're going to beat him again. And I was like, now this is a guy who's literally given the maximum that anyone could give to a fight, right? A child. And Fred, right, was like, no, 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 no. This isn't the end. This is just the beginning. But he understood how important that beginning was. And that's great. I think I, I am certainly heartened and I hope the folks listening are heartened to know that the kids out there, you know, are all right to steal a line. Right. Absolutely. And it's such an important message that there are wins along the way, because unless you can celebrate that, it may not be perfect, but unless you can celebrate that. And by the way, there have been other victories along the way in state capitals, in the state legislatures, et cetera. But unless you celebrate them, then people are going to be, you know, not believe that engagement matters. They need to stay involved and see those wins and see those victories and see those pathways and continue to put pressure on both sides. Well, and I mean, just think about it. There were a number of choice versus life measures on the ballot this fall. And even the one in Kentucky went down, <laughs> right? Like it's Kentucky. It's not California, right? It's not Massachusetts. It's Kentucky, which, you know, boasts several gigantic college campuses. Again, values. Listen, to understand the future of America, Reed, it's less about geography. It's less about red state and blue state. It's about demography, specifically generations. This country is clearly divided 50-50. But as we've talked about, the real divide is 40-40. People under the age of 40 voted 18 points, 59 to 41, for Democrats, state after state after state. People over the age of 40 voted by 10 points, 55-45, for Republicans. That's a 28-point difference. And again, red state, blue state, the numbers really are the same across the country. But I mean, I think this is one thing to remember, though, as we are, I think, also heartened by what we saw this past Tuesday is those numbers only matter if all the people that need to participate participate. Because there's plenty of examples in history where a minority population, politically or otherwise, dominates a majority of the population politically and legally. And so if there are going to be more kids, more young voters, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we are communicating with them, that we need you. We can't do this without you. If you guys stay home, it all goes down, right? Look, you guys, 
you got plenty to blame us for, right? We fucked it exactly. all up. <laughs> like we get it, right? Like you get it. But we're you know, there are some of us who are trying to do our best to leave you as good a deal as we can when you guys finally take over. And frankly, the sooner the better. <laughs> that's right. Help us help you, right? <laughs> right. Help, help us, us help you. <laughs> exactly. But you know, that's the thing that's like, you know, such a good night, great win in the overall struggle, but the struggle is far from over. And the bad guys, this doesn't occur in a vacuum, John, as you know, they don't quit. They don't quit. And like I said, you know, the Republicans did better this cycle by nine points among older folks than they did in 2018. So they won't quit. Listen, I'm heartened because I think that there's real synergy between the progressives and the less progressive folks within this generation, that their values are aligned. Because like we talked about Gen X, it's 50-50. There's not that centrality that we've seen with this generation. 2024 presidential year, more people vote by definition, more people voting, more people who care about democracy will vote. I think that's a good thing, but we have to continue to renew this, the importance of the difference that the participation makes. We need to constantly not take this for granted. It's incredibly, incredibly important. And that's my biggest concern, right? That you look at folks around this town, take a look at these numbers and say, hey, 65%, that's great. You know, Let's focus on another group. And then we don't put the care, the attention, the organizing in 24 7, 365 days a year. We see what happens in 2016. You lose them. And this is one of the things that I should have asked you at the beginning, John, is do you believe, but for a Dobbs, if Republican candidates are 10% less nuts, do as many kids turn out? Do as many young people turn out? Not quite as many, but I'll tell you something that I found in April, which is before Dobbs. I told you in January, we found that the number one issue in the first poll I did of 2022 was for Snapchat. It was outside of Harvard for Social Sphere. And the number one issue across Democrats, Republicans, and independents was preserving rights and freedom. 73% of younger people said that was their number one issue heading into the midterm elections. When you ask questions based upon that kind of value set, six months before Dobbs, that's part one. Part two, in March and April, when we conducted the Harvard survey, we found that the number of individuals who are likely to vote looked a lot like 2018 already, okay? Despite the fact that Biden's approval rating with young people had lagged significantly, they were questioning at that time, it wasn't that long ago, but they were questioning the efficacy of governments, but they were still committed to voting. So at that time, I wrote a memo, which is, could it be true that this generation, unlike others, believes that government isn't working effectively, but will still participate to make it better? Okay, we had not seen that before. I said, I think so. That's what I'm feeling through the qualitative, through the conversations I'm having. We'll see in November if that turns out. And then we saw in our polling, we saw a five point jump from April to October in terms of the number of folks who are likely to vote post Dobbs. Most of that was coming from college campuses and young women, young white women. Right. Let me switch gears here as we wrap up. Polling, polling, a lot of bad polls being pushed out into the ecosystem by right-wing outlets, right-wing pollsters. No one knows anything. I mean, John, I'd be lying if I said that going into Tuesday, last Tuesday, looking in the crystal ball, I couldn't tell you what was going to happen. And I feel like I've been at this long enough where we usually get a sense. But this, clearly, everybody was surprised. I didn't think it was going to be a 60-seat blowout in the U.S. House. And I certainly didn't think that like real clear politics that the Republicans were going to go into 2023 with a 54-46 majority in the U.S. Senate. So the Senate worked out about where I thought it would. The House, I think, was more surprising. What is wrong with the polling industry? No offense, of course. Well, <laughs> no offense taking. So a couple of things, one of which is we need to qualify polling now. 
right? We need to talk about, quote, high quality polling versus yellow polling. And, you know, as many folks know, there was less polling done in this cycle than in 2018 midterms, number one. And a higher proportion of this polling, according to Nate Cohn from the New York Times, was partisan polling. And there's been a lot of conversation about that the last couple of weeks, but there's no question that essentially kind of the right-wing propaganda machine, you know, filled this vacuum that existed post-2018 with faulty polls and faulty data. The first thing I always do when I look at a poll is to look at those crosstabs and take a look at where younger or older people are, just to get a sense directionally, is it accurate? And I saw far too many in Georgia showing that Herschel Walker was winning by a couple of points over Raphael Warnock with the same similar patterns in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, immediately discounting those. But when I looked at the quote, the high quality polls, ABC, NBC, CBS, they essentially didn't change last year. I looked at one year's worth of NBC polling, October 2021, 47-45, two-point margin for Republicans. October 2022, 47-46, one point. We have a land war, inflation, gas prices, school shootings, supermarket shootings, you know, bipartisan legislation, IRA, student debt relief, et cetera, et cetera. Over the course of the last year, one point shifted by one point. I always felt it was going to be very, very close. And then I thought the CBS poll was right on because not a lot of people saw it, but two weeks before the election, they said the only way that Democrats have a chance of this House is if we see something extraordinary for young Americans. If they turn out in the numbers and essentially they, that they said they would, it's going to be a much closer House race. And that's essentially what happened. The other thing just to mention about polling, I think, is we spent too much time talking about just those headlines, right? Like 2024, which doesn't matter. We spent too much time talking about the number one issue without understanding that what the two, three, four, five issues are, right? We spent too much time talking about how enthusiastic people are to vote. I've said a million times, I'm not enthusiastic to go to the dentist, but I still go, right? <laughs> right? I'm not enthusiastic about jury duty, but it's my civic responsibility. That's the way millions of Americans feel, specifically young Americans. So John, as someone who also not only studies surveys, but also conducts them, has it gotten more difficult to get respondents? I mean, I feel like I was telling, I did a radio show yesterday morning. I'm like, there's that old thing, right? Like, oh yeah, you're going to call someone's home phone at dinner time. They're going to answer the phone and they're going to stay on the phone for 35 minutes with a stranger. You're sort of self-selecting. Those are the polls that I wrote when I started back in 1991, 1992, 150 questions. And people enjoyed that actually, right? 30, 35 minutes over the telephone. It takes longer, right? You can't do a solid poll within a couple of days. It just takes longer. You need to be respectful of technology. You need to be respectful that the way in which we really try to kind of focus on making sure that we've got relatively small age groups and within each of these age groups, they're balanced race, identity, education, marital status, et cetera, all the way through. That takes time. That takes effort. And what I want to know, Reed, let me know when you figure this out. We talk about these Republican polls that were flooding the zone. Who's paying for that? We don't know who the sponsors are. To bring it back to many of the other conversations I've had in recent months, it's this is what a movement looks like. Yes, it's got a political party that it puts candidates up for, but it's a whole bunch of dark money squirreled around and all these, you know, Charlie Kirk's just one part of it and the Proud Boys are one part of it and the Federalist Society is another part of it and all this stuff. So, yeah, and they're relentless, right? And they just go 24-7. And the, yes, there is billions of dollars ultimately that flows into this stuff. And there's always somebody willing to pay for it, polling used as widespread mass propaganda. I'm concerned about 
the pollsters who are conducting the polls that were wrong in this election, they conduct polls all the time. By the way, it's not their fault. It's kind of our fault, and I think the fault of the aggregators and the media to include them. If Trafalgar wants to release polls, let them release polls, right? We don't need to cover them. We don't need to talk about them. We don't need to put those in the averages, right? But organizations like that, they ask questions that are not particularly relevant to Americans that create wedges in division society, right? That move through the propaganda channels that are then dividing people or propaganda. Yes. So I think absolutely the last four, five, six years, we've seen, you know, an incredible amount of that polling for those purposes. It used to be the push polls, right? You know, to around turnout over the telephone, but now we're seeing it used for propaganda without question. The Texas Republican Party just put out a survey or survey results, I should say the last couple of days that had Ron DeSantis up like 11 on Donald Trump in some 2024 survey. And Rick and I were looking at it and he goes, oh, margin of error, six and a half percent. Like, what did they, did they did they interview their 12 family members? I mean, but that's the kind of stuff. But it gets pushed around to your point, right, for a very particular purpose. Somebody told them, go do this this way because we want this result. And then we know it'll get picked up because everybody loves a horse race. Yes. It gets picked up in a blog, another blog, and then it's on Fox after eight o'clock at night, and then it's at a convention, and then it's on you know social media, et cetera, and it's being used for propaganda. That, and I'm I'm, I'm particularly concerned about some of the culture war issues and the ways it's being used to target young people within the LGBTQ community, et cetera, in terms of driving some of those wedges. That's where I see it having a real detrimental effect for people's lives. There's one thing I think we have to understand, too, is just from my perspective, John, is that what I think we are up against is the pro-democracy movement is that they really don't care. They're happy to do it because they don't care. Clearly. And the more chaos they get, the happier they are. Well, on that happy note, John, where can our listeners find you online? All of our Harvard data is available at the Harvard IOP website, harvard.iop.edu. All of my polls and my opinions and my tweets are at Delavolpe on Twitter, at Delavolpe on Instagram as well. Well, perfect. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. John, thanks again for joining me and everyone else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. 
I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.